0: Hi, I'm
1: Danielle Petka.
0: And I'm Mark Thiessen.
1: Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on in the House of Representatives?
0: That's a very good question, Danny. It's a mess. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy, who barely, barely squeaked out after five days of voting, a narrow victory to win the speakership. But he gave away the store in the process. Matt Gates, who was leading the Never Kevin Rebellion, he ended up voting present to let McCarthy go through. And he was asked why he did it. And he said, because I ran out of things to ask for. He literally got everything he wanted. When Matt Gates is, you know, his Christmas stocking is so full to the bursting that he literally couldn't think of another thing to ask for. You know, the, the House Republicans are in trouble.
1: Well, but that's it. What I fail to understand about The debacle, and I'm sorry, it was a debacle of the House leadership. Gentle word for it. Yes, it it is. Is this desire to air out dirty laundry, dirty ideological laundry, dirty political laundry, and dirty sleazy power grabbing laundry in public? Okay, we all know that behind the scenes, the sausage making factory is a sausage making factory. It's not something you ever want to see. You know, it's Thanksgiving dinner with your crazy uncle and your awful mother-in-law every day of the year. But usually that's behind closed doors. What's gone wrong with the Republicans?
0: Well,, it, well here's the irony of what happened, is that the reason that the House majority is so small and the reason that we didn't win, control of the Senate was because of these extreme MAGA Republicans like Matt Gates, like Lauren Boebert, who were leading this charge. And by the way, who won election by like, I think I wanna say 0.7%, like 500 votes in a Republican district, so barely even survived what was supposed to be a red wave that swept this vast majority, Republican majority into both houses. And they're the reason why the majority is so small, but that is why they're so powerful. If Kevin McCarthy had a 25, 30 seat majority right now, he would have rode roughshod over them and he wouldn't have needed their votes. He said, you go you know, pound sand. But instead, they shrunk our majority to such a small number that they're actually running the show. Literally, the lunatics are running the asylum today because they were so successful in diminishing the Republican Party's electoral success.
1: One of the things, though, that strikes me, you call these guys lunatics. I agree with you. I think they are lunatics. But the part that we're focusing on is the lunatics running the asylum, not the fact that the Congress of the United States has become an asylum. Now, the Senate is less so, but really, Congress has, for the last decade, even more, not done its job. It's not just that they've spent time on stupid fights that are not about the interests of the American people, like the one that just took place over the speakership. It's the fact that they can't pass bills that they don't pass bills that they can't get to regular order that they can't contain massive spending that they can't control the, themselves that they do no oversight so little oversight over over what matters and so much oversight over what they think is 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 clickbait you know and that's not just now on hunter biden's laptop that has been the case for a very long time I just, I find it hard to understand how we got here. Well,
0: I mean, One thing is I I might disagree with you slightly in the sense that I'd like to know what the hell happened with Hunter Biden's laptop (laughs) and and the FBI, uh, which had the laptop, but yet collaborated with Twitter to suppress the news of it. And these, you know, 51 former intelligence officials who came out with a letter saying it was Russian disinformation when it wasn't. I mean, there's a lot to dig into over there. Mark,
1: but wait a second. I'm not saying I don't care about Hunter Biden's laptop. I'm saying that I don't care about Hunter Biden's laptop to the exclusion of every other priority. I
0: agree with that. And Homer, the head of the oversight committee, the first thing they announced was the investigation of the Hunter Biden laptop. You know, I'm sure they're also going to investigate, do the first real oversight of the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I think is far more important. But they're both important. I, I, want, I want to see them do that. There's a lot of things that they need to do oversight over. I don't think oversight is going to be the big problem in this Congress. I think there's going to be a lot of oversight over a lot of stuff. It's The question of trying to get things done and the ability of a small minority to hold the GOP majority hostage. One of the things McCarthy reportedly agreed to in order to get the speakership was to hold discretionary spending to 2022 levels. If you follow that logic directly, that is a $75 billion cut in defense spending. I mean, I'm sorry, the party of Reagan does not cut defense spending. (laughs) <laughs> and the majority of Republicans, the vast majority of the Republican caucus are defense talks who want to increase defense spending. In fact, one of the few achievements they had in the last Congress was working with some pro-defense Democrats to get uh, defense spending up by about uh, 50 billion a year over Biden's request, because Biden's request, you know, he wants to spend on everything except defense. We would need the defense spending. were actually a net cut after inflation in, the, in his defense request, and they got it up. Now we're going to have a bunch of isolationist know-nothings who are going to hold the entire caucus hostage unless we cut defense spending by $75 billion. And if they don't get what they want, then they're going to have one member do a motion to vacate and kill Kevin McCarthy's speakership. This is what worries me. I don't care. about. I, I want them to do the oversight. I also want them to fund our defense spending so we can compete with China and Russia and Iran in the new Cold War they're waging against us.
1: Well, first of all, you're too kind. You also left out the fact that they want to cut funding for Ukraine. That These are people who think that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's appearance before Congress was some sort of a stunt. So, you know, these aren't these guys are not. Mark, the party of Ronald Reagan. These guys are the party of Herbert Hoover. And for those who are aficionados of our podcast, you will remember when we had Matt Continetti on talking about the Republican Party before World War II, the Republican Party that was isolationist, the Republican Party that didn't want to stand up to tyranny overseas, the Republican Party that believed that the United States was an island that would never be touched by danger from abroad. And that lived in the wilderness for decades we took back the house of representatives in the 1990s okay from before the you know 1950s this is the problem there is no understanding of history there is no understanding of the world there's no understanding or appreciation of the national security threats to the american people that's who they are. And the problem for them is that as they work to diminish the security and safety of the American people, instead of trying responsibly to rein in out of control entitlements, trying to instead go after the tiny plus or minus 3% of the federal budget that's spent on defense, the even smaller percentage that's spent supporting the Ukrainian people in their fight against Vladimir Putin, what we're going to end up with is a party that gets dragged down and in many ways is going to deserve it.
0: You went back to the 50s, but I'd go to a more recent history, the 1980s. They're the party of Ted Kennedy, (laughs) because what were the Democrats back then? They opposed the Reagan defense buildup, especially SDI, And they opposed aid to freedom fighters like the Nicaraguan Contras and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and UNITA in Angola and all the friendly governments around the world who are facing communist insurgencies. They're channeling their inner Ted Kennedy, these wingnuts on the edge of the Republican Party. They do not represent the majority of the country, the majority of the Republican base, and they don't represent the majority of the Republican caucus. In the House. I remember I bumped into a a recent guest of ours, Vice President Pence in the Fox Green Room when McCarthy had said, well, we're not just going to write a blank check to Ukraine. And he, he reminded me that when he was in the House, when he was in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, that the rule was that we'd go with what the majority of the Republican caucus believed. Right, and so if the majority of the Republican Caucus supports Ukraine, and the majority of the Republican Caucus supports increasing defense spending, then why are we going to let a handful of four or five Freedom Caucus guys dictate to the rest of the party what our foreign policy ought to be?
1: Well, you know, I agree with that. Anyway, enough of us ranting. We actually have—we actually—we we actually, actually have a an guess.
0: informed guest who knows what he's talking about.
1: Hey, we know what we're talking about on this particular rant as well. But he knows more, and you're about to you're about to learn that. This is going to be a very familiar name. He's a first time guest with us, so really excited to have him. Chad Pergram is the senior congressional correspondent for Fox News Channel. He's been with them for. Years and years, really almost since the beginning. He was in the House of Representatives at the time on January 6th, locked in the basement while the House was being mobbed by rioters. He's covered pretty much every major congressional event and he has an enormous depth of history. He's been a Capitol reporter and producer for many years before he joined Fox. And on top of all of that, he has an excellent, excellent rock and roll repertoire. You'll see what I mean in a minute.
0: Here's our interview. Chad, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much. Well, your reporting on this unprecedented drama in the House was second to none. Tell us, first of all, just what happened in context of history. How unprecedented was this and how did it come about?
2: Well, we had not had a second ballot for speaker in 100 years. Uh, that uh, speaker's race with Speaker Frederick Gillette of, of Massachusetts went to uh, nine ballots, spread out over three days. So here you had 15 ballots spread out over five days. So that puts it in context. It was the fifth longest speaker election in House history. It was the longest speaker election since 1859, 44 ballots. So just to give you some context here. So 15 ballots is not 44 ballots. But bottom line is, it took a long time, Mark. And, And that's why it was so significant, because the Republicans have this narrow majority, there were a lot of Republicans who said that they were not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. It seemed to shock McCarthy and some of his loyalists in the weeks after the election that there might be more than four or five. There were five who publicly said they would not vote for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, one ultimately did, and that was you know Ralph Norman. Uh, but then you had you know this number ballooned to about twenty. And you had speaker vote after speaker vote after speaker vote where Kevin McCarthy was unable uh, to close the deal. Now, to the layperson, you might say, well, wait a minute. I don't understand. Kevin McCarthy was the leader of the Republicans going into the election. They won the majority. Why shouldn't he just be the speaker? Can't they just do this? And and in closed doors in the Republican conference meeting in mid-November, he won overwhelmingly. He got about 85% of the vote. Uh, The only person who even held a candle to him was Andy Biggs, Republican of Arizona. Here's the problem, and you've heard me say this before, it is about the math. The rule in the House of Representatives, because the entire House elects the Speaker, not just the person who gets the most votes, the entire House elects the Speaker, and you must have an outright majority of the entire House of members casting ballots for a candidate by last name. Let me say that again. You must have an outright majority of the entire House of all members casting ballots for a speaker candidate by surname. So Kevin McCarthy far and away had the most votes, at least in the Republican conference. But in those early speakers votes, he was coming in at 201, 200. You get the idea here. And Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader from Brooklyn, he was coming in at 212. But he, too, did not have an outright majority of the entire House. The House was constituted uh, at the beginning of this Congress at 434 members, one vacancy. Uh, Donald McKeachin from Southern Virginia died just a couple of weeks after the election. So the magic number, if all 434 members vote, would be 218. So you have McCarthy down in the low 200s because you have these protest votes going on. You have Hakeem Jeffries at 212, and nobody's getting close to 218. What finally happened is Kevin McCarthy won with 216 votes. And the reason is because you had several Republicans who voted present. Thus, they did not cast a ballot for a candidate by surname. So those ballots do not count. And this is why it was so hard to read how many votes you needed on each ballot. You had Wesley Hunt, a freshman from Texas who had to go home. His wife had a baby prematurely. The, the baby was in, you know, ICU. Uh, you had Ken Buck, Republican of Colorado, had to go back because of a medical issue that he had in Colorado. He was gone for about not even 24 hours, flew out to Colorado, came back, but you don't have people actually voting on the floor. So in the the vote that Kevin McCarthy uh, loss right before he won, this would have been the 14th ballot. He actually got one more ballot, 217, but it wasn't 218. He was one short. So the irony is, is that he actually came in one ballot you know, shorter and actually finally won the thing. It's it, it's fascinating math in all this. It
1: really is. So Chad, I have to ask you, and thank you so much for being with us. This is fascinating and the history as well. And the rules are important to understand. Here's the thing That I don't get. And this is a little bit of a a value judgment in some ways. Why did Kevin McCarthy stick with this? At a certain moment, don't you turn around and just say, you know what? Go for it. Let someone else try this and have them potentially turn back to him in order to settle matters.
2: Another time, another place that probably would have happened. And the one thing I kept saying is that maybe this is the fight that Republicans are having over the Kevin McCarthy speakership that never happened in 2015. Remember, he was supposed to be the Speaker of the House when John Boehner stepped aside in October of 2015, and Kevin McCarthy simply did not have the votes and knew it. And that's one of the reasons he bowed out. The problem then was, were it not for Paul Ryan, who was kind of Switzerland, Kind of everybody could agree upon Paul Ryan coming in from the, you know, the wings here. It was described to me at the time that there would have been blood on the floor of the House of Representatives if Paul Ryan did not run. I mean, Paul Ryan, I remember as soon as McCarthy withdrew in 2015, uh, Paul Ryan instantaneously put out a statement saying, I would not be a candidate for speaker. And two weeks later, the man was speaker. I remember chasing Steve Scalise down a uh, stairwell in the Longworth House office building asking him if he was going to run for speaker at that point. You had all these different people who then were going to run, but none quite had the political bona fides or cred that Paul Ryan had. You had uh, Daniel Webster from Florida. You had Jason Chaffetz, the former congressman from Utah. Uh, I was told that Michael McCall from Texas was interested. I was told that Lynn Westmoreland, now a former member from Georgia, was interested. So you see this internecine fight that would have gone on had... They not been able to finally you know, coax Paul Ryan to run for speaker. The problem in 2022 and 2023 is that there was no Paul Ryan or a Paul Ryan type figure who could step into the breach that everybody could agree upon. And so this was the doomsday scenario. At what point did they say, OK, look, Kevin, you don't have the votes. Let's go with Steve Scalise. And it was probably maybe just as dicey about Steve Scalise because you had a number of moderate Republicans who said that they were not going to vote for anybody other than McCarthy. Uh, and if, if it came to that, that McCarthy did not have the votes, the only person that they would endorse, and this isn't a name, but they, somebody who was not a member of the institution, which has never happened before. Don't forget that you don't have to be a member to be the Speaker of the House. And so there was talk about Fred Upton, now the former representative from Michigan, or Lee Zeldin, now the former representative from Long Island. So this was the problem. And this is why Kevin McCarthy just had to stick with it. And and I tell you, had he finally not won on that 15th vote, this was as high trauma as I've seen in a long time on the House floor over a vote, certainly of this magnitude. They go into that first vote. And I was given a hand signal not long before the vote, even though I was told earlier in the evening that they thought that he had the votes to, to win, that they thought they might be a little bit short. But you're like, OK, let's see what happens. And you have to, again, look at each ballot and see what the vote matrix looks like so then they go into the vote and he doesn't have it and the house was going to adjourn and come back and try again uh you know a week you know on monday you know and try again and this is the only thing that the house could do now a lot of things could happen at that point you might have people go to kevin mccarthy and say look it is obvious that you do not have the votes this is not going to work let's try something else anything else because that would be the first thing number two you don't know who's going to show up on monday I just mentioned two people who are out with health issues. Well, who is your Wesley Hunt or your Ken Buck on Monday? You know, and and, and what I thought was interesting is you had Republicans criticizing Democrats for sticking together. Uh, you even had Dan Bishop, Republican of North Carolina, on on Meet the Press over the weekend saying that this was uh, like something from uh, you know Leader Xi in China or something sticking behind Hakeem Jeffries. Well, I understand why Republicans and for that matter Democrats don't think much of uh, Leader Xi in China. But they would die on the Republican side of the aisle to have, you know, the the resolve of the Democrats, that G like resolve or however you want to determine, uh, call it, to stay behind their person. Because had this gone on, and you see, this is where it got to be potentially very dangerous for Kevin McCarthy or Republicans. Had you had that number of total people voting in the House drop because you have absences, say, on the GOP side of the aisle and you have just enough people voting present and you got Hakeem Jeffries coming in nearly every roll call vote at 2-12, you could have had Speaker Jeffries. I, 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 that is insane. It's surprising as anything, but it would have been possible. So, uh, you know, had he not won on the 15th ballot in the wee hours of Saturday morning, he probably would not have won. And perhaps that underscores how tenuous his clasp on the Speaker's gavel really is.
0: So, Chad, you're a close observer of both these parties on Capitol Hill. You've covered Republican majorities. You've covered the Democratic majority. It's unimaginable to me that this would have happened with the Democrats. (laughs) I mean, Pelosi had a very, very narrow majority anyway. And what is it about the Democrats and the Republicans that the Democrats seem to understand that politics is a team sport, (laughs) that unity is essential to the success getting through their agenda. Do they have just fewer moderates and their version of the Freedom Caucus is really the majority of their caucus and is running Wait, the show?
2: You just hit on one element of it. They don't have as yeah. many moderates, these blue dogs that were around. Remember that Nancy Pelosi during her first stint as speaker, uh, the blue dogs were a problem for her. And, and I don't mean in like a, a a big problem way, but I mean, this was something she had to deal with, trying to pass the cap and trade, the climate change bill, uh, trying to pass Obamacare but she had a bigger majority and it wasn't that she would give these folks a pass, but, you know, was able to, you know, work with those majorities in different ways. And there were a certain number of votes that she could give up. Okay. So that's the first thing. Number two, the flip side of that is that you now have not so many moderates and, and blue dog Democrats in the institution, but you have more liberals. You have the squad, the progressives. OK, so that's a different type of headache. You know, you, you address one problem, you got another. You know, this was the old Will Rogers statement where he would say, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And, and this is kind of what people you know used to say about the Democrats. But when it came to Pelosi's leadership, whether you like her or not. She was really good about leading her people and getting people to where they needed to be. You know, her her former chief of staff, John Lawrence, used to tell me and he would quote Mick Jagger to me. He said, she's not going to give you what you want, but she will give you what you need if you know the song. And so Democrats were often able to find something that Nancy Pelosi was giving them, something that they needed and they could stick together. And the same thing with with Hakeem Jeffries so far. I mean, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see if maybe this democratic resolve stays you know Nancy Pelosi like her or hater got an awful lot of credit for always knowing where all the votes were and a a 222 to 212 majority with Nancy Pelosi which was the same majority that they had i mean that would be like silk for her you know no problem at all uh, i'd say this is how good a vote counter Nancy Pelosi is and and you know the the criticism of Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise When they were in the majority before and the minority is that they were not very good at counting votes. Well, this was Nancy Pelosi. So November of 2016, there was a bit of a challenge to her because Trump had won. Uh, Democrats did not flip the House. Uh, People were getting frustrated that she was still in leadership. Uh, You had Tim Ryan, uh, now the former congressman, the moderate Democrat from northeast Ohio, ran for the Senate unsuccessfully, said he was going to challenge her for leadership. So she was walking onto the House floor and it was really loud in the hall. And Ed O'Keefe, who's now with CBS, I think he was with Washington Post at the time, see her. And we uh, holler to her, how many votes are you going to get in the private caucus meeting tomorrow? And I thought because it was so loud, the din in the hallway, I thought she said three-fourths. And she goes into the cloakroom off the House floor. And I said three-fourths. And the door closes. And the next thing you know, that door reopens. And Pelosi's head sticks out and she wags her finger at me and she goes, oh, no, no, Chad, two thirds, two thirds. And then she disappears again. Now, two thirds is less than three fourths. But okay, whatever. The next day they had the caucus meeting and it was it was a substantial challenge from Tim Ryan. But Nancy Pelosi got precisely 67 percent of the vote in her caucus. You would never see that at least heretofore, from McCarthy and Scalise. That is the vote-counting prowess of Nancy Pelosi.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the rules package that passed. You know, just speaking even neutrally as someone who worked in Congress, and Mark and I you know, both worked on the Hill, um, some of the things that these sort of self-described rebels demanded were things that are Good for Congress, good for the American people. An end to these massive omnibus packages that no one on earth could ever read um, sufficient time to read bills that are before Congress. If you remember what Nancy Pelosi said, and I know you remember it better than I, we'll know what's in it once it passes. Was sort of the attitude, and a variety of good regular order demands, and then some other less regular order demands, particularly the concession that now Speaker McCarthy made uh, that only one member of the House can institute proceedings uh, against him, which sounds like a recipe not for getting no satisfaction (laughs) as as Nancy uh, and Mick Jagger had it. I don't have a good rock and roll here song, um, but, but basically just Living constantly on the edge of being ousted.
2: Bon Jovi uh, living on a prayer. Nothing else matters. Metallica. We can do this all day. You, you're right.
1: <laughs> a, 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 absol- <laughs> you can a, a, do this
2: all day. <laughs> That's so, great. So, so here's the problem. Now, if you look at that rules package, there is nary a word about this in there. The reason being is that you, there is no such thing in the rules package as a motion to vacate the chair, which is what we always hear. This is how it works, that any member, and what you had is not so much what was, what was in this rules package, but what's out of it. Previous rules packages had language in them, which said, this is the threshold to vacate the chair. And you had Mark Meadows, for instance, this facilitated the uh, demise of John Boehner when he was the speaker in 2015. We talked about this a few minutes ago, but he crafted a resolution which is something called a question of privileges of the House, which any member can do. And what Mark Meadows did in the summer of 15, which led to John Boehner stepping aside in the fall of 15, was he never made that live, that resolution. He just kind of threatened it and lorded it over the head of John Boehner. And John Boehner was a pretty good vote counter himself, maybe not to Nancy Pelosi's level, but saw the writing on the wall, was trying to get out of there anyway. And he said, I'm done. Pope comes and I'm done. All right. So here you could have any member. And I, I was looking very closely to see if they would restrict this to being a member of the majority party who could call for a motion to vacate or try to you know, basically bounce the speaker or a no confidence vote, as we might say, in a European parliament or something. So that's not what it is. So, you, you know, let's see when we get through the debt ceiling fight in the spring or whenever this comes. Let's see when they fund the government. uh, If they fund the government, September, October, if uh, the government is funded or we have hit the debt ceiling or not hit the debt ceiling and a sufficient number of cuts haven't been made or they didn't do that with the government funding. If somebody, anybody does that and introduces a resolution to challenge Kevin McCarthy in the speakership. And if I were the Democrats, uh, you know, this is why this resolution is, is, is written in a very kind of dangerous way. You know, anybody on any day that ends in a Y could come up from the Democratic side and say, "You know what? We saw an awful lot of turmoil last time on the on the Republican side of the aisle. That was sure fun. Let's do it again." You could do that conceivably. The way this resolution would have to be written, and the way that the rules are written, or in this case, are not written in this rules package, so it lends itself to the potential for mischief. Uh, but it is dangerous turf for Kevin McCarthy.
0: So Matt Gates when he was asked why he finally relented and voted present, said that I ran out of things I could even imagine asking for, <laughs> that he basically said he got everything that he wanted from Kevin McCarthy. Do we even know the full extent of the concessions that McCarthy made, the side deals, the quiet promises to get this? And how are we going
2: to find out about it? I mean, well, we keep asking questions. I tried to ask uh, Matt Gates questions in the hallway after that, and he really didn't offer anything. It was like not even having a regular conversation. I, mean, I said, well, what happened? What did they say to you about what? You know, it was that sort of a strange conversation, frankly. So nobody really knows. There are suggestions that there are handshake deals and things here. You know, this is something where the Republicans have talked a lot about transparency on this. Uh, we'll see how transparent they truly are. We'll see if maybe, you know, some people have suggested that McCarthy knows that this is not going to be a long speakership. And so he's going to, Take it for now and see what they can get done. And if he's able to stick around, great. We don't really know. And the only way that we can um, find out about this, let's see who gets certain gavels. Let's see who gets certain committee assignments. Let's see what the promise is and how how realistic some of these promises are to cut all of this spending and not hit the debt ceiling. I mean, how, you know, do, do they adhere to this business of of only doing individual bills, this threat of the Senate? If you don't pass individual appropriations bills, we're not going to touch it. OK, well, OK, results in a government shutdown. Fine. But. At what point does the public turn on the Republicans for this? You know, you know when we've had government shutdowns before dating back to Newt Gingrich, this has never really worked out real hot for the GOP, uh, whether it be with <laughs> President Trump, Newt Gingrich, Bill. I mean, Bill Clinton handed Newt Gingrich his head politically after the trifecta of government shutdowns in late 95, early 96. Newt Gingrich was never the same politically after that, frankly. So, you know, you are playing with fire. One of the great quotes I've ever had from all time was from Adam Putnam, former congressman from Florida, was the agriculture commissioner in Florida. He was the conference chair some years ago. And this is in 2008. And Barack Obama is doing really well on the campaign trail. Republicans are not doing well in House and Senate races. John McCain, you know, wasn't within striking distance. And we come up to September and there's this question about funding the government. And a reporter asked Putnam if Republicans might try to force a government shutdown for political gain just before the 2008 election. And you could kind of see Putnam, we're all sitting at a table in the basement of the Capitol. You kind of see the wheels turning. And he goes, shut down the government for political gain. And he said, that would be like trying to break dance around nitroglycerin. So you see how dangerous it is to potentially use these government shutdowns for political gain, which is something some Republicans, including Bob Good, Republican of Virginia, has suggested. He said on our air on Fox the other day, we should use this for leverage. So we'll see.
1: One of the things that has interested me, just as a political note, is the fact that these four, five more dissenters to Kevin McCarthy's speakership have been called, quote, far right, unquote. And when I look at them, there's nothing that says to me that they're far right. Uh, but then again, I'm I'm not sure what the American political spectrum really <laughs> looks like <laughs> anymore. It looks more like a, a circus. There's another rock and roll song <laughs> here that we could put in. Just talk a little bit about who these People are some of them, many of them, frankly, who we've never even heard of before. Yeah, it's not consistent. Like there's a line that runs
2: through all of them. Um, You know, you've had Lauren Boebert, for instance, you know, because the Freedom Caucus, for instance, was divided on this. You had people like Warren Davidson, who supported Kevin McCarthy, and then someone like Lauren Boebert, uh, who did not. Uh, You know, and and who even, uh, you know, upgraded McCarthy on the floor, saying McCarthy should listen to some of these people and step aside and even criticize former president Trump saying he's got it all wrong in supporting Kevin McCarthy. He should be calling on you to withdraw. That was a rather amazing statement from from Lauren Boebert. And again, you know, she has not demonstrated based on her election her reelection where she won by only about 500 votes or so that she's necessarily, you know, backing away, you know, trying to be a more centrist member of Congress. So you have folks like that, Matt Gates. Uh, some of his views sometimes are viewed as as libertarian. Uh, he works with you know Democrats on certain bills that deal with uh, you know freedom of speech and and marijuana and so so on and so forth. You know why should the government be involved in certain things that Republicans sometimes get attached to because it's a, a moral issue in some quarters or something like that. So it's it's and he's not even somebody who's a member technically of the Freedom Caucus. So there's no individual line here. Andy Biggs, obviously, Bob Good, who's kind of new on the scene from Virginia. You know, he was one of the most vocal critics of Kevin McCarthy. So it's it's a mixture. It's a mixture. And this is the problem that Kevin McCarthy will have as he tries to massage this small group of people who are, you know, rebelling. And is it the same group of people, you know, who rebel on, say, the debt ceiling bill or any other bill that comes down the floor versus, say, the speakership? Uh, you know, it's going to be that four to five vote magic you know, center on every vote that we have uh, the next two years in this Congress.
0: So another thing that Gates tweeted out about this fight was in opposing McCarthy that the biggest loser, Zelensky, biggest winner, U.S. taxpayer. The vast majority of the Republican Caucus supports Ukraine, but this minority doesn't. Do they have enough of a death grip on McCarthy that they can Stop any more aid from going to Ukraine, and what what's the future of our support for the Ukrainian resistance against Russia?
2: Well, a lot of people thought that uh, it was going to be tenuous at best uh, to get uh, more uh, Ukraine money through in this Congress, uh, since uh, Republicans took control of the House for the very reasons you state. That's why they kind of loaded it up in the omnibus bill that they passed uh, in, in December. So that was the first thing. You're right that generally most Republicans support Ukraine, but you have this interesting coalition developing. Of of some Republicans who just aren't for this, uh, you know, people who thought that Zelensky uh, was here for a photo op when he spoke to a joint meeting of Congress in late December, just before Christmas. There are many skeptical people to that. And Kevin McCarthy has tried to say, well, we have to make sure that you know all dollars that go to Ukraine are accounted for. Well, yeah, I got news for you; it's a war, and war <laughs> dollars. I mean, it's it's real. I mean, it's not like you have somebody with some green eye shade and say, okay, this many J dams. You know, it just doesn't work that way. It's war. And so you're not going to have really great accounting for all this stuff. You send either you're going to help them or you're not. That's the first thing. Number two, when it comes to defense spending and, and, you know, 53 to 55 percent of all discretionary dollars that Congress appropriates each year go to the Pentagon. Now, of course, the Pentagon, because it gets the most money from Congress, you are naturally going to have the most waste, fraud and abuse at the Pentagon. Okay. But you can't whittle that down to, to, you know, actually start to try to balance the budget necessarily. And if you're going to balance the budget or make attempt at it, we can talk about what the logistics of trying to balance the budget in a second here. one of the places you have to cut is in the military realm because you spend so much on the military. Now some Republicans, that statement right there is absolutely anathema. That's the first thing. But here's where this gets really interesting. You have a developing coalition and maybe this is more like a european system right now because we're talking about coalitions which is what they do abroad all the time we don't do that as much in the united states but maybe in an equally divided congress or this type of house maybe this is what works you have a coalition of dovish democrats and anti-interventionist Republicans who get together and can bring down defense spending. I thought it was interesting in in the rules debate uh, to put the the omnibus bill on the floor in late December. Jim McGovern, Rules Committee chairman, one of the most liberal members of the House, he said, I think this annual increase in defense spending is ridiculous. And there's a lot of Democrats uh, who aren't just members of the squad who would agree with him on that front. So that is something to watch for. But if you are going to try to cut the budget, I'm going to take you down the rabbit hole here. So I talked about more than 50 percent of all dollars that Congress appropriates each year goes to the Pentagon. That is a staggering figure. And everybody says, well, we want to cut everything else. Well, you're not going to make much headway balancing the budget or getting the numbers down. Let's just say that's the goal by cutting everything else and not uh, the Pentagon. And when it comes to cutting the Pentagon, somebody makes a, a ship, a boat. Uh, there's a military base in somebody's district, or what? This stuff is spread out. It is really hard to cut those things because everybody has has some stake in the game in this. So that's going to be challenging. Now let's go to the bigger promise: a budget that would balance in ten years. Now you might remember Paul Ryan, before he became Speaker of the House, he was the Budget Committee Chairman, and he would release these much vaunted Ryan budgets that aspired to balance the budget in ten years. He got a lot of criticism for that because these budgets, and here's the dirtiest little secret in Washington, a lot of times these budgets don't count. They aren't actual real numbers. You can come up with anything and write it on a cocktail napkin and say, this is my budget. Paul Ryan, for instance, wanted to eliminate Obamacare. Okay, fine. But then he counted the revenue that you brought in from Obamacare against his deficit reduction table, which was. Ridiculous because you're talking about two different things. But that didn't have he didn't have to be you know upfront about all that stuff because budgets don't count. So we talked about the defense spending. So two-thirds to 70% of every dollar that the federal government spends goes to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, what we call entitlements. This isn't money that Congress appropriates each year. And if you're going to make a dent on federal spending, Uh, you're going to have to cut about $7 trillion from those three entitlement programs. That's a staggering amount of money. Uh, And you talk about potentially putting the U.S. into a financial shock, not even to address the debt ceiling, by the way. These are just the realities of this. And because most people, once they start finding that out, this is why there has been a resistance on both sides of the aisle to cut entitlement spending Why? Because it is the third rail of politics and all the Democrats have to do is sit back and say, can you see what they did? And if Republicans were to cut all of these things, Democrats would win the House and Senate in 2024 and the presidency, if not the midterms in 2026 and probably everything in 2028. That's how challenging this is. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have an out of control spending here. I'm just telling you what the reality is of cutting these things, because people say, oh, we want Congress to balance the budget. But don't touch my Medicare and Social Security. We want Congress to balance the budget, but don't touch that base in my district. That's the problem. Something has to give. And when you have a four to five seat majority and you haven't made good on those promises, if you're Kevin McCarthy and Bob Good or Lauren Boebert or Andy Biggs then gets up in your grill about this, that's where you might have a no confidence vote for speaker.
1: Exit question for me, and you led us directly to this, Chad. One of the aims when you have what we used to politely call cohabitation, it seems more like bedlam to me at this point. But one of the things that you had is that a Republican House with a Democrat in the White House would seek to call attention to the problems in the White House. I right? mm-hmm. would seek to call attention to the weaknesses of the other party. And as you know, we all know, even the Democrats know before the 2022 election, the weaknesses of the Democratic Party and of this president in particular are manifest, whether it's his own age or it's the border or it's crime or it's inflation, we could go on and on here. What it looks like to me and even more based on this conversation is rather than being able to do that in the only Republican body now in, in our government in the House, they are merely going to call attention to, I'm just going to use the word, what a shit show the Republican Party is over the next two years. Isn't that the risk? And is anybody at all interested in governance and governing anymore?
2: Well, the criticism has been that uh, you have people who are in the House of Representatives, and both parties are guilty of this, who are more interested in viral videos and owning somebody on Twitter and so on and so forth, and it gets you a lot of clicks and that's fine. Uh, I was struck that uh, Kevin McCarthy talked about this China competition committee that he's putting together that actually will have some bipartisan support. And I think that's probably an area where they can get some things done on a bipartisan basis. He was talking about the membership of that. He said, it's not people to go and get viral clicks and things. This is a serious committee. Now, I don't know if my back way of interpreting that is that these investigations of Hunter Biden and laptops and Mayorkas and everybody else are not serious investigations. That's that's me maybe reading between the lines there a little bit. But Republicans have to be very, very careful about not going too far and making These hearings, uh, uh, whatever they do, FBI, weaponization, of the federal government, Hunter Biden, into the term that you used a couple of moments ago. That is the danger that they have, because already Republicans have demonstrated that they have chaos on their side of the aisle. People aren't going to remember that you had almost every Republican together on passing the rules package. People are going to remember that they were all watching C-SPAN and Fox and CBS and NBC and everybody On a Friday night into a Saturday morning because the Republicans could not elect a speaker, even though they had the majority and they should have had this ironed out since November. That's what they will remember. And so it is easier for the Democrats to portray Republicans as, quote, too extreme, doing things that are that are too extreme. Marjorie Taylor Greene, as soon as the uh, questions came out about President Biden and whether he inappropriately had classified documents when he was vice president said oh this is why we need to impeach him i've been it has to happen this congress you don't have the votes for that uh you've already had um pat fallon a republican of texas introduce uh, articles of impeachment for alejandro mayorkas you can see where this starts potentially potentially to spin off the tracks for the gop if they're not careful now maybe and this was the whole thing from the republicans they knew that all of these financial things that i talked about a few minutes ago are not Reality, it's pie in the sky. It's a great press release. So maybe they thought politically what we can do is serve as this check to the Biden administration. I mean, this was something that Republicans in the House talked about in 2011, when the Tea Party propelled them in the majority. And and John Boehner often talked about when he was the Speaker. He said he's basically I'm, I'm a goalie. You, you know, I'm trying to keep these things out of the net. I, I get the gist of this, but this isn't a great metric to judge Congress on he said, you know, Congress should not be judged by how many bills it passes, but but by how many bills it repeals, laws it repeals. You know, the idea that, you know, we're, we're diminishing federal government here, which is a, a conservative principle. That's not going to happen a lot, but that was a nice soundbite from John Boehner. But it, it underscored the governing philosophy. That's not so much what we have now. And that will be a problem for Republicans if they are viewed by the public as being too extreme. Some people have said already they've missed the boat, they, even though they won the House barely when it was thought they were going to have 40, 50, 60 seats, did not capture the Senate, that they misread the election. Who's the first person that Kevin McCarthy thanked for the speakership when he exited the chamber? Donald Trump, who is blamed by Republicans who will talk to you privately and sometimes not so privately about why they didn't you know, do better in the election. So that's another thing. You know, a lot of people thought that the midterm elections were a repudiation of that type of governance and politics and Donald Trump being the ringleader of the Republican Party. So those are things that, you know, the Republicans have to reckon with because there is the real potential for the voting public to see the Republican majority as what you called it, a blank show.
0: Exit question for me. So another Gates tweet. He retweeted a supporter after the vote that elected McCarthy. And the quote tweet said McCarthy may hold the gavel, but Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert hold the real power in the House. Kevin McCarthy is speaker in name only. Is Gates right?
2: He has the gavel. But th- this was the criticism that Kevin McCarthy had. I asked Kevin McCarthy on Thursday night of last week, I said, aren't we here for the first time since 1859 because, you know, you should have had this worked out. And doesn't that inherently make you a weaker speaker? If you do get the speakership, and he said no, he said because I I would be afraid of them. So Kevin McCarthy might not be afraid of them, but it's hard to see this kind of muscle that he's able to exercise. Now, to be fair, there is something to be said, and we've seen this with speakers Joe, Joe Cannon back you know hundred and some odd years ago. This was the revolt in the House, you know that his his speakership, he ran the place with an iron fist, and so on and so forth. You could make an argument that there's merit in not having strong speakers to you know devolve power from the speakership, which is precisely the opposite of how Nancy Pelosi did things, frankly. Uh, Paul Ryan didn't really do it that way, but he was kind of in charge, the same thing with John Boehner, but you know we've, we've gone through eras of, small, of, of strong speakers here, and that, that was certainly the calling card of Nancy Pelosi. So there's there's probably merit in contrasting yourself to that. but when it comes to actual governance, keeping the government open, you know, we've asked Republicans about George Santos. From New York. Uh, Democrats are quick to jump on that, saying, you know, Pete Aguilar, the chair of the Democratic caucus, that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is owned by George Santos because he needs his vote. And there's some question about if Republicans are reluctant to try to punish him, kick him out, takes a two thirds vote, probably not going to happen. We've only kicked out five members in House history. The last one was 21 years ago, Jim Traficant. It's a challenge to do that because they need that seat. Democrats are going to have another seat here pretty soon. There's a special election in Virginia middle of february for that seat for don mckeechen who passed away in november so yeah uh, the governing part of this is really challenging and if you don't have a strong speaker that's a problem i mean remember i said about nancy pelosi if if she was in charge uh, again you might not like her politics but this would be easy for her because this is what she does you know she, she's got it all figured out in five minutes kevin mccarthy every single vote is going to be a challenge and it's going to be a challenge because who's here today who are the ken bucks and the wesley hunts who are out because of medical reasons whose flight got delayed how you know how long is this going to go every single vote is going to be like this it's going to be an absolute adventure
1: adventure is a nice word for it chad you've been wonderful and the depth of your knowledge is truly awesome so thank you so much for being game to take the time the pleasure was mine thank you
0: thank you chad take care Well, God delivered as expected. I mean, he has just an encyclopedic knowledge of the operations of Congress and history, and as you promised, rock and roll. It was a great interview. I want to get to know these, these people a little bit better, Danny, because apparently Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert are the new speaker and co-speakers of the House of Representatives. Kevin McCarthy is speaker in name only. I think we should uh, we should have somebody on to tell us a little bit about who these people are and what kind of influence they could have. Who would that be?
1: So <laughs> wow, I feel like I should have had a drum roll here, but Hugh Hewitt is going to join us next week to talk about some of these issues. And, and look, you know, yes, all right, you and I have rented and raved about oh, uh, the irresponsibility, the presumptuousness, the clickbaitish politics of these folks, but the truth is that it behooves us, and everybody who cares about the future of the country to understand what the divides are in the Republican Party. If we had had more such conversations, maybe we would have understood that Donald Trump was going to win the election in 2016. It is wise to listen to dissenters, even if you recognize that perhaps their main interest is in throwing bombs and not actually in getting stuff done.
0: Yeah, you know, it reminds me when I was in Fox talking about this during the whole battle. I mean, they're not a uniform group. I mean, like Chip Roy, who was part of the 20, is a serious guy and he's a budget hawk. And I get that. But there are others like Gates and Boebert who are, it's what Alfred said in Batman, the Dark Knight, he said, some people just want to see the world burn. (laughs) I think that's who these people, some of these people are. They just want to see the world burn. And it's a problem because, you know, Joe Biden campaigned for president on a promise of reaching across the aisle and uniting the country. And as soon as he got into office, he got captured by his party's extreme left wing. And they were quite successful in ramming through trillions of dollars in spending and this extremist agenda. And now, in response to that, we've got a Republican party that has a diminished majority in the House, but a majority. And it seems like. The American people didn't quite trust them to give them full power over Congress, but it's empowered the extreme of the Republican Party, which is now going to be running the show on the House. And so, you know, is there any hope for constructive people who want to get things done for the American people and the voters who elected them? Or are we going to be taken over by the extremes of both parties swaying back and forth between every election? I, I, I'm really worried about it.
1: Uh, I'm worried about it, too. I don't know. I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you. I'm really looking forward to getting a better grip on where we're headed. So, <laughs> bye. So, so we can figure out, you know, how we can do better. We've got so many real challenges facing us, so many problems. It's not just the ones that grab the headlines every day. It's school systems, the million child drop in enrollment in public schools, because public schools have been disappointing and letting parents and, and children down for decades now. It, there's so decades many- Decades of educational
0: things- progress wiped out.
1: But there are so many things that are out there that really, really matter. And yeah, I would love to start figuring out what the answers to those challenges are and paying less attention to the Batman people who just want to see the world burn.
0: We'll get started on it next week with you, Hewitt.
1: That we will. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening.
0: See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm
1: at D Pletka, and I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this.
0: Thanks for listening.